This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. There's been a rash recently of broken engagements and quick divorces, and I wanted to address that issue. What's causing that? Why are people breaking up so quickly? And I happen to see this a lot as people sit in front of me. So I want to address this area tonight of abusive behavior, how to look out for it, how to you know, uh, diagnose it if you're going out with someone. I could just tell you three four cases where a young lady who got engaged, was had a really great job working for Bloomingdale's corporate office in the city. Um, and then after she got engaged, the guy became very controlling. Even to the point where he was over for her house on Shabbat and he wouldn't let her talk to her mother that much. So you have to be on the lookout for things like this. Or another case where after they got engaged, she started making fun of the way she dressed. I don't like the skirt. I don't like the earrings. I don't like... That was like very troubling, and that also broke up very quickly. So we have to be on the, on the alert for this kind of behavior. So tonight, we're going to learn that it's critical to learn how to date. As a matter of fact, right before I got here, I had a client who's 34 years old, a girl, really nice. She's an RN, and I asked her, what do you think is causing you to, to fail? And she said to me, I think that I have a lack of tact. And I said to her, that's a big problem, because communication is the key to successful dating. And if you can't communicate successfully, tactfully, carefully, with a lot of compliments, you're going to have problems. So we have to learn how to deal with that. Okay, now, it says in Tehillim, keep away from evil and do good. If anyone knows the Hebrew, sur va'asetov. This certainly applies to your spouse. Don't hurt your spouse, either with words or deeds. Don't hurt your dating partner. Does this person make you feel insecure? Does the person that you're dating or married to feel, make you feel guilty, controlled, or defensive? I was in Dallas, Texas two weeks ago to, as the guest speaker for Shabbaton. It was a fantastic Shabbaton run by a wonderful woman called Malki Ozeri. Uh, her family is from the Rosenbergs. They're one of the most prominent families in Dallas. And uh, I had a private consultation for, with a young girl who recently, whose family recently came to move to Dallas. They came out of Denver. She lived in Baltimore where the guy that she was going at, that she married practically tried to control every aspect of her life. After he got married, he refused to let her go have a manicure with her friends. Couldn't have a coffee with anyone else. Her brother came over for an evening because he was driving through. He was in yeshiva nearby. He wouldn't let him sleep over. So you have to be on the lookout. It's unfortunate, but that marriage was dissolved within seven months. So let's be on the lookout. For it. I'd rather not be a casualty if I was someone. So keep away from evil and, do, and, and only do good. Does the person that you're dating make you feel insecure, guilty, controlled, or defensive? Does he or she act superior, excessively angry, sulky, or withdrawn? Watch out for a anger problem. Watch out for a temper tantrum. One of the things I especially tell the girls to look out for are the three, the three uh, diamonds that I, that I basically draw up, are the, are the three non-negotiables when going out as a girl, as what you're looking for in a guy. Look out for kaas. Look out for Kamtan and look out for Kaptan. Look out for a guy that has a temper tantrum. Look out for a guy that's cheap with money or time. And look out for someone who's a Kaptan. Comes to the word Hakpada or Makpid. Have to have it my way. No flexibility. These areas are major league red flags. Okay, now, does he or she exhibit extreme mood swings? Does he or she act kind one minute and cruel the next? Does he or she exhibit anger that seems so threatening you change your behavior because you're afraid of them? Or feel forced to do things that can contradict your principles or better judgment? Is your she manipulative, insulting, belittling, or overly secure? I had a consultation yesterday with a parent whose 23-year-old son, every time they go to Miami, will not allow them to make 
reservations in the hotel. Because he has to physically inspect at least 8 to 10 hotels. It takes them 8 hours to check into a hotel. Until they find... And then he... It just gets worse. I can't even uh, talk about it. But this is what's going on. This is manipulative behavior. Is he, jealous, he or she jealous or accusatory? Does he or she always blame, curse, or ignore you? Does he or she exhibit a low tolerance for frustration or anxiety? Is he or she overly sensitive to criticism, whether real or perceived? They can't handle criticism. Is he or she, her, is her, he or his or her personality suspicious, fearful, distrustful, or paranoid? I always tell people when they're dating, look out for the avoidance syndrome. A guy or a girl that doesn't want to answer questions. Suddenly, they go mom on their background, on their relationships, on their parents. And they avoid that subject and they try to take you to detour to another subject. We'll look out for that. Is this his or her personality, like I said, suspicious, fearful, distrustful, apparent? Is this someone who wants immediate gratification with little or no consideration for the consequences? I'm dealing with a case out west coast. Where the, I'm doing a Shalom Bay situation there. Where the lady has have similar problems. He didn't care about me, it was just about the bedroom. That's all it was. I, as a matter of fact, I got the very same WhatsApp from, from Brazil yesterday, from a woman who watches me. Goes, Why is it that all the men that I go out with are only interested in the bedroom? No one cares about me. She's obviously advertising the wrong zakh, you know? Is he or she moody and quick-tempered? Does he or she threaten violence against himself or herself or someone else? Does he, always, he or she always criticize or view themselves as victims rather than victimizer? Everyone's got it against me. You ever see those people? Why is the world all ganging up against me? They won't take any responsibility for the problem, but it's always, it's always the, the veldt, the world that's causing them problems. Take responsibility, own up to it. These are all red flags of emotional abuse. It's vital to recognize these things and all other abusive qualities and take them as warning signs. Although each quality mentioned does not necessarily make you an abusive person, each is worth watching out for. Be on the lookout. Right? Forewarned is forearmed. In some cases, an abuser may exhibit only one behavior in an exaggerated fashion. Someone exhibiting a few of these behaviors should trigger a flashing red light in your brain. I had two cases tonight. A lady went out with someone from Great Neck. Um, six months, and she wanted to become in a... Um, what's the next level above nurse? Uh, the one that's like a doctor. Nurse practitioner. No, you can't go to school. I forbid it. He told her, I won't allow you to go to school. End of that situation. And then another one was going out with a guy for a, a month. Practically didn't even know her. And wanted to get engaged right away. He knew clueless about him. And suddenly tried to manipulate and control her. Both men and women can be abusive. It's not strictly a male problem. By learning to identify these patterns and signals, you can stop unhealthy relationships as soon as the abuse begins. Abusers are skilled at acting. They're the best actors. So you won't experience abuse until the abuser is sure you're under their control. This type of person excuses their behavior by claiming that you're overreacting. What are you talking about? You're, it's a figment of your imagination is what they're going to tell you. Or overly sensitive that everyone talks to access with. I'm normal, it's you that's the problem. That's what the abuser is going to tell you. But that's not true. Everyone has the right to be spoken to and treated with respect. Controlling behaviors are not the results of stress, anger, drugs, or alcohol. They're actually learned behaviors. These people are great actors that are skilled at what they do and they practice it to perfection. 
Their skill behavior, their learned behaviors that one person uses to dominate, to intimidate, and manipulate someone else. Jealousy is a form of abuse in which your partner tries to control your life and relationships. It includes controlling which friends you see, what relationships you keep, and even how you dress. I can tell you I have seen this, and I see this on a regular basis in my dating coach practice. All the time. This is often done under the guise of, I care about you. I care for you. The abuser claims that his his or her actions are a sign of love and concern. Jealousy has nothing to do with love and everything to do with being over-possessive and not trusting the other person. I'll give you an example. I get a WhatsApp from someone who tells me that his wife repeatedly looks at his WhatsApp private messages, which annoys him and which she has no right to do. Anyone who uses physical coercion to attain what they want and invades your personal space by sitting too close to you or touches you when you have asked them not to is being abusive. Both emotional and physical abuse are extremely painful and the abused partner requires major help. An abuser typically comes like on like a whirlwind claiming, you're the only person I can talk to or I have never felt like this for anyone before. With phrases like, if you love me, I'm all you need and you are all I need. An abuser attempts to isolate you off from your friends so that you can't talk to anyone else in your social network and family and pressures you to commit to the relationship. Generally, he or she is chronically unemployed and always feeling as if someone is out to get him or her. He or she will blame you for anything that goes wrong and then says, you make me so mad. You're hurting me by not doing what I want you to do. These are the classic lines of an abuser. They use feelings to manipulate you. This type of person is easily insulted, claiming he or she is hurt, when he or she is actually angry. Every setback is taken as a personal attack. Being called into work overtime, receiving a traffic ticket, or being asked to help others can generate a rant by these people. Someone who has issues such as fighting, setting fires, and rejecting authority, who's hit someone before, who threatens violence, is prone to being physically abusive. Look out for that. Be extremely careful if you suspect that the person that you're dating or married to, may have abusive qualities. Don't allow excuses to cloud your vision. Too many people keep their eyes closed until it's too late because they just want to run down the aisle and get married. You have to see them for who they truly are. Marry a person who will treat you with the love and respect that every human being deserves. Now let me share a wonderful story with you. And hold, you know what? Before I do that, let me get into it. About abuse. And then I'll get into something else. An amazing story about abuse. Listen to this. The manager of a post office in Israel faces a customer who humiliates him publicly and shames him in front of his co-workers and customers. He could have responded as anyone else could have. Instead, he chooses to respond in the exact opposite way. What happens next is an incredible earthquake. And the man writes, I've been with the post office for 25 years in Israel and I'm the manager of a post office branch for a decade. I don't think it's hard to describe what the job demands. It's difficult, challenging, and it comes with a lot of stress. There are never enough workers to get the job done, and there's never enough time to do the work, because you've got to constantly process the mail. At the post office, as opposed to other government branches, promptness is of the essence. People who mail letters and packages want them to arrive on time. I guess plenty of people will laugh at putting, am I putting the words post office and promptness together, especially during periods... And when I'm talking about when the situation was a catastrophe due to changes that took place in Israel, where they cut back on manual labor, leaving us with shortages, and as a result we had to process the same amount of mail with less people to help us sort it. The people who bore the brunt of the anger... 
were the workers in the field. The big executives stayed in their air-conditioned offices showing each other charts of the amazing results they were getting from the cutbacks they'd made. As a branch manager, you have dozens of decisions to make every second, from making sure enough clerks are manning the customer service windows, to arranging postal bank transfers or money orders, to sorting packages and putting mail in post office boxes. Actually, I was a manager, a clerk, and a sorter all at once, in addition to doing every other job that needed to get done, because the pressure does not let you ever sit in your office. The story I want to tell you happened two years ago. To be exact, it took place on Tuesday, Elul 28, which is in our secular calendar, September 19, 2017, two days before Rosh Hashanah. There's significance to this story. The customer that afternoon walked in and asked to send money to Mexico. Western Union offers a money transfer service. If you want to send money anywhere in the world, all you have to do is walk into any post office in Israel, deposit the money, and request the transfer, and it's done. Within hours, the money, the person who you sent the money can walk into any Western Union branch in the world and receive the money. Plain and simple. So this customer walks in that day with $5,000 and asks to make a transfer to his father-in-law in Mexico City. The clerk tried to make the transfer, but there was a computer glitch, and the transfer did not go through. Meanwhile, the line was not moving. You know what happens in the post office if the line doesn't move? They're ready to kill you. More people came in, and it was getting crowded. People started to grumble. And this is Israel now, not America or Canada, where people are a little bit more patient. After a few more unsuccessful tries to try to get the money over to Mexico, I told the clerk, let it go and move on to the other customers in line. And the guy says, I'm first. How dare you cut the line? I want this transfer done now. I explained to him, but there's some kind of problem and we can't seem to figure it out. We can't make the rest of the line wait. The man raised his voice. What you're doing is wrong. I tried to be courteous. I'm sorry, sir, but other customers are waiting and your transfer cannot be completed right now. Please wait a few moments. Have some patience. I promise you we'll try again. The man waited. Eight customers were served. And then I told the clerk to take care of his transfer again. But once again, the transfer did not go through. I tried to help, but we kept getting an error message from the computer. We didn't know what to do. Meanwhile, the man was talking on his cell phone with his father-in-law, speaking rapid Hebrew in a very loud voice. No way was this private conversation. He made sure that every single person in the post office heard every single word that he said. And listen to what he said. I'm here, Abba, at the worst post office in the country with the worst manager in the country. Is this humiliating or is this humiliating? Everyone on the line is listening to this, including all the employees. I've never seen someone so unprofessional, Abba. That's what he announced to his father-in-law and the entire post office with all my employees and customers hearing it loud and clear. Some customers appear to be enjoying my humiliation since they also bore a grudge against the post office. And what could, what could be more satisfying than to watch someone else let out his frustrations on me? The man relished the role he'd taken on himself. And he began to fancy himself like a reporter reporting on a major event. Loud enough for everyone to follow every single word, he broadcast a blow-by-blow account of every move I made, adding commentary about how slowly I was working and how poorly I ran that branch in general. I can't say it did not affect me. He was trashing me in public, He had a sharp tongue and a cruel tongue, and he knew how to do it to perfection. We tried to help him a third time, but again, the same glitch happened. I called other post branches, but they reported no malfunctions in the computer systems. Then again, they were not trying to transfer money to Mexico. 
We had no way of knowing if the problem was with the post office in my branch, the computer in my branch, or was it on the Mexico side. And the man didn't stop his abuse, and he surely didn't stop his insults. I never met a person so verbally abusive in my life. When I say abusive, you probably imagine someone screaming or cursing. But there wasn't that. His words were refined. He described me as a psychologist would describe a patient. On second thought, psychologists respect their patients. This man has zero respect for me. He was ridiculing me with a well-honed cynicism. You know, the, the Sefer Achot Sadikim says that a cynic or a sarcastic person, because he's always looking for the bad. He was ridiculing me. In fact, he described for his audience how I probably acted at home, that I probably was a mean witch at home. He also told them how I got my job. Someone must have used pull at the post office to get me a job. That's what he told his father-in-law and everyone online. I'm deliberately describing I left the hurt and humiliation and pain to share with you what I went through right then. But believe me, no matter what lens I would go to describe it, I'll never come close to giving you the full picture of what went on there. So you're getting a picture of what abuse is? It's, it is said that one who causes the blood to drain from another person's face by humiliating him is considered to have what? Killed him, right? Shed his blood. And that's exactly how I felt. I was put down publicly for everyone to see, and not a single person came to my defense. I judged everyone favorably, though. At that time, we knew that we had a lot of changes in the post office due to cutbacks in Israel. Now I knew how the crowd must have felt while witnessing the incident of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, the famous story of the person who was by mistake invited to Kamsa's house, and then he said, let me stay, and the host kicked him out. And no one said, boo. And the rabbis didn't say a word, which led to the man reporting them to the Roman authorities, and that led to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And I was thinking, these people are quiet because they're enjoying seeing me humiliated. Still, I, was, I hoped someone would come to my defense. I think I was hurt mostly because my workers, the people who work under me, witnessed it all and saw me shamed in public. One worker did try to silence the man, but he too came under attack. A few all placed barbs, stunned him into silence, leaving the attacker free to return his attention to me. I mean, the, guy, the guy was so sharp with his tongue that an employee who tried to shut him down couldn't because the guy attacked him verbally and closed him down right away. Closing time arrived. I had to inform this man, as he continued on his verbal assault, that the transfer could not take place that day, but if he wanted to, come back tomorrow morning, and hopefully we'll be able to pull off your transfer to Mexico. Forget it! I'm never stepping foot into this place again, he said. Then he found something else to say. No, I take that back. I will come in here, but only on the day you don't set foot in here, because I'm going to go get your job. I'm going to report you to the authorities. I won't give up until you're kicked out of here, and hopefully from the entire system of the Israel Post. You're an embarrassment to this to the institution. I'll make sure your superiors know about this. And then he left. And we all sat there stunned in silence, myself and all the employees. And no awkward silence hung in the air. A few clerks looked distraught as I felt crushed. I didn't know what to do with what happened there. I also felt enraged to the point of burning anger toward that man who heaped upon, um, upon me abuse in public. He hurt my feelings deeply and put me down in front of my workers and the whole crowd of people waiting for service. What do you think what do you do with feelings like those? And then, listen to what happens. An idea popped into my mind. One of my employees was a woman who'd been married for 15 years and had not been blessed with children. What hadn't we done for? We'd taken upon ourselves all types of Kabbalists and divided up Sefer Tehillim numerous times, but nothing happened. I suddenly found myself crying out, I forgive this man! And I dedicate everything I just went through to Naomi, our employee, Naomi Bad Shulamit and her husband to be blessed with children. Tears filled the eyes of every employee. 
Only someone who was there could understand what a gift I gave her. The kind of humiliation to which I was subjected is something people wouldn't, wouldn't even forgive for three or four decades. Yet I took it, fresh and bloody, and presented it as a korban for the welfare of a childless couple. Strangely, this made it easier for me to do. We closed up and we headed home. That night I could not sleep. The public tongue lashing that man had given me tormented me and made me burst into tears. And I'm not a man who cries. I tried to hide what I was going through from my wife, both to spare her and also because it was too hard for me to share with anyone. Morning came and I went down to Davin and go to the post office. The workers opened the customer service windows. A half hour passed and suddenly in burst the verbally abusive man of the day before. You could have heard a pin drop. Everyone was silent. Had he come back to continue? More abuse? No. He strode over to me, shook my hand, gave me a warm hug, and said, I want to apologize to you for the way I acted towards you yesterday. I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. I'll do anything for you to forgive me. I looked at him amazed. I didn't understand what was going on with this guy. The truth is that at first, I thought he was going to get ready just to punish me more verbally. Maybe that was an intro to another attack. But no, the man was completely serious. You won't believe this, he said. As you know, my father-in-law was waiting at home for a call for me to tell him, go down to the building in Mexico City where the Western Union offices and go collect the money. He would need to go to an office building where Western Union was located to get the money. But as long as I didn't give the go-ahead on the phone that the transfer was made, he saw no point in going down there. Just minutes after I left, he said, about the time my father-in-law would have been at the Western Union office if the money had gone through, an earthquake of a magnitude 7.1 on the Richter scale took place in Mexico City. Dozens of buildings collapsed, including the office building where my father-in-law was supposed to have picked up the money. Hundreds of people were killed. I was upset with you, the man said, but all along it was Hashem himself who prevented the deposit from going through to save my father-in-law's life. I'm so ashamed of the way I treated you. I'm so ashamed of the way I spoke to you. I know you can't forgive me for what I did. And there's no way to repair the damage because there was a big crowd here yesterday. I'm willing to stand here and apologize to everyone if only you'll say you'll forgive me. I remained silent. It's okay, one of the workers said to him. He already forgave you yesterday. What do you mean? Yesterday after you left, he announced that he forgave you for all the humiliation and embarrassment and was giving all the zikhus or the merit for doing so to one of our co-workers, Naomi, who is still childless after 15 years of marriage. The man looked at me. He was speechless. Suddenly he burst into racking sobs and crying. Tears. How wicked I am. I'm a Russia. And how righteous you are. I hurt you when you hadn't done anything wrong to me. While you, not only did you not respond in kind, you actually forgave me. I hope I can repent and do tshuva for the things that I did and how I treated you. And I promise to, repay, to, to pray for that employee. He turned to leave, stopped at the entrance of the post office and said, I'll never forget what I learned from this episode in my life. And then he was gone. And now comes the best part. Exactly nine and a half months after this took place, Naomi Bachulamit had a baby girl. Yes, the one who was childless for 15 years. And every single employee in our post office knew why and in what merit this miracle took place. The Creator spins His world on an axis as He wishes. He causes a glitch in our computer so that a good Jew in Mexico doesn't leave his house to pick up a money order so that he wouldn't find himself at the center of an earthquake that would have easily and quickly snuffed out his life. 
and he sends a man into my post office to humiliate me as no one in my entire life has ever done so that I can give gift, the gift of forgiveness to a childless couple. And now, if anyone has any doubts about the amazing Hashqa Pratit, this story just eliminates all those doubts. That we have to be so careful, we have to know that everything that happens in our life is the Tova. Everything is for the best, that's Imunah. Whatever happens in my life is good and to thank Hashem for everything. Let's move on. Everyone comes with baggage into a marriage, emotional, psychological. All your past experiences, whether positive or negative, qualifies baggage. Because each one of us is affected by our upbringing and our relationships with family and friends, teachers, employers, and other people we've dated. And I often tell everyone, don't think you're going to go into marriage and telescope your problems into the future. If you've got emotional stuff, psychological stuff, you better fix it single. As many therapists say, Marriage does not fix problems. Marriage only exacerbates them and makes them worse. Only magnifies the problem. So if you've got any issues, now's the time to solve it. We are affected by our experiences, which are good, and our significant traumas, which are bad. We're affected by our fears, our insecurities, our sensitivities, and self-image. Accepting that all these feelings play into your reactions towards your dating partner or your spouse can help you understand yourself and your emotions. Using that knowledge, either change your attitude or clarify your attitude towards your dating partner or spouse and that's a critical ingredient to forming a good marriage. Everyone's upbringing has a profound influence on their relationships and married life. So when you go out with someone, it's a good idea to investigate what kind of home they came from. The apple does not fall far from the tree. And investigate the parents and investigate the relationships they have with that person you're dating and the other siblings. The positive experiences can be good, the negative experiences can scar you. It can even bring conflict into your future marriage. If you're the kind of person who loved eating dinner together with your family, you're going to want to create a family where your wife or husband and children enjoy the same experience. If eating together with your family always felt like it was rigid and demanding, you may want to build a home in the future where mealtime is loose and attendance is not mandatory. So a lot of what you experience in your home life is going to be perpetually telescoped into the future. For example, both Debbie and Dave had birthday parties that only their relatives attended. Debbie resented the fact that her friends were never invited, but Dave loved the intimacy of a small family party. Although Debbie and Dave had the same experience, their reactions were totally different. Now as they're planning their son's birthday party, they need to work together and decide whether they should include friends or invite only relatives. Part and parcel of the baggage people carry into marriage is the dreams and expectations they have. And if you're, unex- if you're not realistic in your expectations, that can lead to, unfortunately, a lot of problems. For example, Tanya grew up in a small three-bedroom apartment with six brothers and sisters and no privacy. When she married Steve, she hoped he would make enough money to buy a house where each child could have his own room. However, Steve's father was a workaholic, never spending any time with his kids. Steve preferred to make a lot less money, but have a smaller home with ample time to devote to his children. Now we have... You know, we have two people that have two different things that they want to get out of life. And we may have conflict. Both dreams make sense, but they conflict with each other. You've got to talk when you're going out. You've got to make sure that your value systems line up. 
that your hashkafa lines up, your expectations, your she'ifot, your aspirations, your yearnings line up. Although differences like these can be worked out, they can also be a source of friction if they're not dealt with when you're dating. Steve can work a bit more than he would have originally planned, and Tanya can adjust to having two children in a room. Not that every kid has to have his own room. If the couple discuss their expectations and explain their reasoning, they're more easily able to understand one another's feelings, making negotiating a compromise so much easier. It's important for each spouse to define their dreams when they're dating. If there's friction in the marriage, you can see how and why the dream might be interfering with the relationship. Each person should also be aware of their own sensitivities and insecurities, so that they're not hurt or insulted or outraged when people step on those areas. They must be also aware of their spouse's needs and sensitivities. I've spoken about this often. You know their buttons, and you know which ones bother them, so don't push those buttons. Sometimes people are immature and insecure when they get married. Look out for that. An immature person is not a person who will not take responsibility, will not work on the marriage. An immature person is the kind of person who plays tit for tat. I did that for you, so it's your turn to do that. Marriage is unconditional love. It's not about a tic-tac-toe board. Your turn, because I did for you, now you have to do for me. It's unconditional. You don't keep score. You have to grow together, realizing as well that, you're, that you have sensitivities and so does your spouse. Here's how to be careful with people's buttons. Janet lost her mother at an early age and the loss scarred her. Every time Rob mentioned his, his mother, she got angry because she didn't have a mom. She was jealous and resentful. Of course, Rob could not be expected to ignore his mother because of Janet's sensitivity. Janet had to seek help to accept her, her mother's death. However, Rob did have to tread lightly on the subject every time he spoke about his mother because that was a sore point for his wife. Janet had to be mature enough to deal with this terrible tragedy, and Rob had to be aware of Janet's sensitivity and not evoke pain or anger inside her. I'd like to talk a little bit about cause, anger. It's related that when the Gert Sedek of Vilna was about to be burned at the stake for converting to Judaism, everyone familiar with that story? There was a count who lived at the time of the Vilna Gaon, who was a Catholic, who discovered Judaism, who decided to become a Jew, and they called him Avraham ben Avraham. And now, they, um, the church authorities went on a massive, massive search, and they found him, and they determined that he was hiding in the base measures, Bet Midrash learning, and they decided to put him to the stake and kill him, but they gave him an opportunity to renounce Judaism, and he refused to. He was about, now he's being taken out to the middle of the town to be burnt at the stake for converting to Judaism. The executioner said to the ger, to the convert, I suppose you're thinking that after you're in Shemayim, you're in heaven, you'll bring down the wrath of God upon me. Even the executioner was afraid that just something to Judaism, and there is a God who takes, you know, who, an accounting and, ju- and, and judgment. The Ger Tzedek replied, when I was a child, I want to tell you something. I had some toy soldiers. One of my friends broke some of my toy soldiers, and I was very angry at him. I asked my father, who was the ruler of our area, to punish him. My father ignored my request. I thought, just wait until I grow up, and I have the power my father had, my father, then I'll come after you. This is what he was thinking as a child. When I grew up and I came to power, the incident of my childhood was meaningless. I didn't punish my childhood friend. So I, so he turns to the executioner and he says, when I will be in the eternal world, I realize how insignificant our bodies are, that it's just the housing for our neshama. I have no intention of punishing anyone for destroying my body. Look how he controlled his emotions. It's possible to put things in perspective. 
Okay. Rabbi Levin was attending a funeral when he saw a close friend of the deceased leave the funeral procession. This is Ari Levin, who was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, who was the father of Rabbi Yosef Yashiv, who passed away. When he saw a close friend of the deceased leave the funeral procession and go over to a stand where flower pots were sold. So there was a funeral. He saw a close friend leave the funeral in the middle to go buy a flower pot. He brought a flower pot and returned to the procession. Rabbi Levin was very upset. Attending the funeral of a close friend, there's no time to be thinking about buying a flower pot. In keeping with the commandment, you shall surely reprove your fellow Jew and not be and not humiliate him in public and don't sin because of it. He went over and quietly told him that his behavior was inappropriate. How could you leave the funeral in the middle to go buy a flower pot? Like what's shot? Listen to what he told him. The man said to Rabbi Levin, "This is a great lesson for married couples. There's a patient in the hospital." who has a disease so contagious, not coronavirus, I hope, that the doctors ordered that everything that was in contact with him must be burned. They were going to burn his tefillin also. I pleaded with them not to burn his tefillin, and I promised them that I would personally see that they were buried. They acceded to my request. I bought the flower pot in which to bury tefillin at the cemetery according to halacha. Amazing. Rabbi Levin said, Never again will I ever accuse someone of any wrongdoing without giving them a chance to explain their behavior. Before you go out on the attack, let the person explain. There could be a reason behind it. Regardless of how clear something may be to you, don't jump to conclusions. Without anger, ask for an explanation. You would want to be given the benefit of the doubt as well, if it was you. Give this consideration to your spouse. We're going to now close our discussion today with a story that you may know. It's a story that is, tells a volume about anger. Rabbi Nachal of Chernobyl died. His wife sought support from his friends. There was no money. It's not like today. We have all types of wonderful chesed organizations. There was no money in Eastern Europe a hundred years ago. You starved. No, there was no going to get food stamps and Medicaid, whatever. So there's no money. On one visit to one of the Hasidic masters, Rav Baruch of Mezebuch. Mezebuch is actually where the Baal Shem Tov is buried. They've been there many times. Please tell me, the Rabbi Seta, please tell me some of the practices of your holy husband. He was considered a very holy man. The Ritzin thought for a few moments and said, I have to leave here. But why, Rav Baruch said? Because she said, I knew of so many of my husband's practices and now my mind has gone blank and I cannot think of a single one. Rav Baruch escorted her to her coach just as it was about to leave she stopped the driver and lied. I just thought of a story involving my husband. Normally I would not relate this, however, and as much as my mind has gone blank, I take that as a sign that I'm supposed to relate it to you, because I remembered it. All of our years married, we lived in abject poverty. There were times when the children went hungry. There were times when we shivered in the cold because we couldn't afford wood for the fire. My husband had a period of filling that were very dear to him. The parchments had been written by Ephraim the Sulfur, who the Baal Shem Tov rated amongst the best scribes in the country. He used them himself. There was a rich man in town who offered to buy the tefillin from my husband for 50 rubles, an outrageous sum. 50 rubles could have provided for our entire family for four years. I said to my husband, please sell the tefillin. For two rubles you can get a pair of tefillin and then you'll have 48 left. We could live like kings and queens. And we could feed the children. But my husband said that tefillin were not negotiable. I was caring for my niece, 
who was orphaned from my, her mother, I said to my husband, when Makala needs a dowry, will you then sell the tefillin, at least get the niece married? My husband said that to marry off a needed girl, one can even sell the Sefer Torah. That appeased me somewhat. One year, as Sukkot approached, there was not an esrog to be had. My husband was very sad that he would not be able to fulfill the mitzvah of the Arba Aminim. On the morning before Sukkot, as he returned from shul, he saw a man carrying an esrog in a lulav, the only one he had seen in the whole town. All excited, he ran to the man and asked him, how much do you want for the esrog in the lulav? The man said, Rabbi, you can't afford what I'm going to ask. It's the only esrog in the entire territory. It's the only lulav within hundreds of miles. The wealthy man in town, the wealthiest man in town is paying 50 rubles for them. My husband said to the man, you stay right here. Don't move. He reasoned that he doesn't need his filling for sukkahs, right? You don't put full on in sukkahs. But he needs the asterisk for sukkahs. He hurried home, grabbed his filling, went to the rich guy, sold the uh, filling for 50 rubles, Right? And then went and took the 50 rubles and bought the esrog and the lulav. And the lady goes on. I returned from the market, having scrounged a bit of food for sukkahs. I looked at my husband who seemed to be ecstatic with joy. His face radiated as if the Shekhinah Ruch HaKodesh had rested on him. Why all the joy? I said to my husband. He made some small talk to avoid my question, but I continued to nag him. And he finally revealed to me how he acquired the only lulav and esrog in the whole territory. I felt my world turning dark as black. I remembered all the scenes of our children going to bed hungry and shivering from the cold, but he would not sell the tefillin for them, yet he sold them to acquire a fruit which would be worthless in seven days. And worst of all, where would I get a dowry from Alcala, my niece? I demanded, where's the asterisk? And my husband pointed to the shelf. In a fit of rage, I opened the cupboard, took out the asterisk, and threw it on the floor. Smashing it and breaking it, the pitam, making it invalid. My husband turned pale as a ghost. Tears ran down his cheeks. Then he said softly, My precious tefillin, I no longer have. And that's what to fulfill the mitzvah of the Abba meaning, I don't have that either. How Satan will rejoice if I got angry at my wife and ushered in the holiday of Sukkot by destroying my shalom bias? No, I won't grant Satan that pleasure. Rav Baruch said, Rebetzin, I can understand why your husband refused to part with the tefillin all those years. I can also understand why he sold the tefillin to acquire an esrog for sukkahs. But how can a person have the superhuman self-mastery not to react with one angry word at such a provocation that is beyond my human grasp? Only someone as holy as your husband could achieve that. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what control is. That's what great Midos is all about. That's what we have to look out for in abusive signs of someone that we're dating. Thank you so much for coming. Again, I want to just tell anyone out there who needs any kind of help in dating with Shaduchim, should reach out to me at drjackdating.com. And please, use the Partners in Shaduchim website. It's amazing. If you want to put up your own profile, you want to search profiles, you want to get what's called a PAIL pal, a personal liaison who can help you, please go on partnersinshaduchim.com. And by the way, we have a great, great, Singles event taking place this Motzeh Shabbos in Flapush. There's a flyer, there's a certain link, it's being, it's a fundraiser for Yachad, which is a national organization run by the OU for people with disabilities. It's gonna be pizza and sushi, wine tasting, and desserts. It's on, I believe, uh, Eitz Chaim, which is on the corner of, uh, Avenue Pini 13th. But go to either my website, drjackdating.com, or 
WhatsApp me at 305-206-1916 for the flyer. Or you can go to Dr. Jack Dating and then pull the flyer down. Have a wonderful and amazing week. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.